0: to Holy Shenanigans. I'm your muse, Tara Lamont Eastman, pastor, podcaster, and practitioner of Holy Shenanigans. You might be curious what it means to be a practitioner of Holy Shenanigans. For me, practicing Holy Shenanigans is paying attention to the holy or sacred happenings in everyday life. I'm so glad to have you along for this adventure that I call holy shenanigans podcast. In my role as a pastor over the past several weeks, I've been studying the parables in the gospel of Matthew. Each time I look at these parables, I know it's important to pay close attention to Jesus' quick introductions because they help me to know if the parable is an example of contrast or a complement or pairing to God's kingdom or character. Is this parable one that is about comparison to God's kingdom, or is it something that is like God's kingdom? If you go to read these parables and you're looking at them for the first time, it's important to say that the content of these parables are not gentle, but in fact have lots of drama, conflict, greed, and in many cases, acts of violence. This drama, though, is intentional as those who hear these parables are drawn in, wondering what's going to happen next. And how in the world is this like, or not like, God's kingdom? So when it comes to drama in Jesus' parables, you might be thinking, what's the point? If Jesus and the temple leaders have something to say to each other, why don't they just make it clear? Why does Jesus use parables? Throughout Jesus' ministry, He uses parables and stories regularly. Jesus uses stories and parables to draw in his audience. He uses story and parable to address issues of injustice and greed and to hopefully be a catalyst for changed hearts, minds, and lives. Jesus used parables, like this one about the wedding guest with no wedding clothes, to help his listeners see others and themselves with compassion. Jesus uses story and parable to make space for human growth, mentally, spiritually, and emotionally. Also, in the context of scripture, Jesus uses parables to speak prophetically, to challenge those who were doing harm, so that they could see themselves in the parable and not escape it, so that they can have a defined space for repentance. That while the content of all these parables can draw up all sorts of questions and conflicts, the intention is to bring people into restored relationship with God and one another. And so, to answer the question, why parables and stories? Well, Jesus used stories and parables to literally change the world. Isn't it amazing what a parable or a story can do? As I continue to wrestle with the parables of Jesus, I am thankful for this question. What can a story or a parable do? This question about the power of story reminded me of the storytelling work of Lisa Combs and her best friend and illustrator, Pam Fraser. Lisa is a teacher, behavior specialist, educational consultant, certified autism specialist, and educational consultant She also is a children's author. Lisa has combined her educational expertise and decades of experience of working with children, as well as her creative talents to create children's books with a social-emotional learning focus. Lisa's stories are beautifully illustrated by graphic designer and illustrator Pam Frazier. Together, Pam and Lisa have created Best Friend Books, as best friends, illustrators, and storytellers. And by the way of some holy shenanigans, I've had the opportunity to meet Lisa and to begin to learn about her life-changing, storytelling work with best friend books. I'm excited to share her work with you today. So here I am with uh, my new friend, Lisa Combs. And Lisa is in education and advocacy. And she is also a author of children's books. But Lisa, you also have a, a book company called Best Friend Books, right? Yes, actually, I do.
1: And it's called Best Friend Books because there's only two people in the company. That's uh, uh, the kind of company I like, Small. <laughs> and it's my, me and my best friend. I'm the author of the books and my best friend, Pam Frazier, is the illustrator. And she also does the publishing, layout, all of that kind of stuff, technical things that I don't know how to do. So we work together and she is also an art director of a, and a, and a fine artist herself. And then I'm an educator. So we both have our own separate businesses and then we come together for best friend books. Oh, that's, that's wonderful. Yes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I have always been fascinated with stories. I grew up spending a lot of time with my grandfather and he would tell me stories on the front porch. He'd sit, he'd be sipping his coffee and telling me these dramatic stories, usually about some kind of bear chasing somebody. And, and I remember it sometimes my mom going to her father and saying, dad, you gotta like lay off her imagination. She won't go to bed. Yep. <laughs> But I have leaned into that imagination and have been so blessed by hearing stories that have been enriching. And and my mom, thanks to my mom, I'll give her a shout-out, always putting books in my hands, a variety of books from science fiction to biography to, you know, technical things. So yeah. the power of of literacy and reading is something that's very important to me. And so I would like to know a little bit more about how you ended up, one, writing books and why you write the stories you write. Oh, great. Well,
1: I'm kind of like you, Came from a family that reading was encouraged. I was one of the few people, friends that I, of people in my circle of friends that it was not frowned upon to bring a book to the table. If we were in the middle of a chapter and it was dinner time, my parents were like, go ahead, finish your chapter while you eat. It's okay. <laughs> Uh, But then they would want to know what are you reading? Why do you like it? Uh, And we talked about books a lot. I saw our house was filled with books. We were encouraged to go to the bookmobile every week and bring home our load of books. And it's just a huge part of my growing up. And books are a safe thing to me. They're a way that you get to experience all sorts of things in life without actually experiencing them yourself and getting to learn from those and When And so I was a huge consumer of books my whole life. My best friend is as as well. We were roommates in college and then had drifted our separate ways. Both had been through marriages and name changes and completely lost track of one another. And after 20 some years, we found each other again. We were having dinner. And at that time, I was an educational consultant. She was a graphic designer. And we were just talking about all the things that had happened in the intervening years in our lives. And and we were saying it wouldn't have been wonderful to have a book when you were a kid that that was like a crystal ball that helped you realize some of the things you were going to go through and give you strategies for dealing with those before you had to deal with them. And uh, that's kind of how the idea for our book company was born. I had a manuscript that I had already written called How to Tame Your Monkeys, but I didn't have uh, a person to draw the illustrations. I draw but not well enough to illustrate a book she had already illustrated some children's books and so it was like it was one of those Reese's peanut butter cup moments you know she was chocolate and I was peanut butter and it was meant to be (laughs) so that's how it started and since then we've we've written over 30 books together and they're all on topics where we think about what are some things we wish we had had coping strategies for or had thought about proactively Rather than having to experience it and figure it out the hard way all the time. And mm. so that's the basis of our books.
0: Wow. That's great. I mean, I am remembering the choose your own adventure books. Yes. <laughs> you know, which which in some ways was about problem solving, right? Cool. But to have something that's specific to a particular topic that is important to a young person to to be a guide, to be a to walk that path before them. It's really, really important. So could you tell me a little bit more about your first book? What is Taming Your Monkeys about? So that
1: emerged from my own probably 10 or 15 year yoga and mindfulness meditation practice. And I had done a lot of studying about kind of Eastern philosophies and the mindfulness strategies that I learned from that. And that was partic- in particular one of the things that I was like, wow, this would have really been helpful when I was 18. In fact, this would have been helpful when I was 13. In fact, it would have been helpful when I was 10 to be able to recognize that I am separate from my thoughts and my feelings, that I, they are part of me, but they're not all of me. And then I can be powerful in how I redirect them. And so... So how to tame your monkeys was based on that Eastern philosophy of the monkey mind. If you're familiar with that. Yes. And I resonated with that so much when I heard that, that analogy of your mind being like a bunch of monkeys that are jumping all over the place and not letting you rest. And so the idea behind how to tame your monkeys is to help kids visualize their thoughts and feelings as monkeys jumping around that they can let, they can just sit back and watch, or they can actually do things to try to tame. And so there's, you know, fun monkeys, there's anxious monkeys, there's scared monkeys, there's kind of ornery monkeys, and that we don't have to, we don't have to judge ourselves for having those monkeys. We can accept them, we can watch them, and we can also learn how to tame them so that they're not disrupting our peace and happiness. And so that's what the book is about. It's envisioning, it's talking about my monkeys, and then we invite kids to identify their own monkeys. And then we learn things like taking a deep breath, finding a space of your own to spend time in, doing things you love, playing outside, uh, listening to music, lots of different strategies that can help you tame your monkeys when you want to. And, and then we do workshops with kids on that topic as well.
0: Yeah. So then you can lean into your background in education. Yes. Um, yeah. So that's kind of my half of
1: the business is that I do workshops for kids on all the topics. All of our books are on social emotional learning topics. So we have a book on positive visualization. We have one on talking to yourself as nicely as you talk to other people. We have a variety of books on learning those social emotional strategies to create peace and happiness in your life.
0: Oh, wow. And so for folks that might go, can you give me a a brief definition of what social emotional context is? Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: So social emotional learning is basically five areas of development that we start when we're born and we continue developing throughout our whole lives. It's self-awareness, which is understanding who you are, the good, the bad, the ugly, <laughs> everything in between. Uh, there's self-management, which is the ability to recognize that I can do things about who I am. Um, social awareness, which is recognizing that the world doesn't just revolve around me. There are other people And other issues that need to sometimes come before me and that I need to be aware of. Relationship awareness, which is the ability to form relation, different kinds of relationships with people. Um, And so those are the kind of the core pieces. And then the last one is responsible decision making, which is kind of comes from all those other pieces. The ability to know who I am, uh, know who I am in the context of the larger world, build relationships um, manage my own emotions and then make good decisions.
0: Awesome. Thank you for that definition. Cause sure. I think that that's very helpful for people to, you know, when they hear a new term to be able to, like, how do I apply this? Or, yes. you know, can I, can I break this down. So when you talk about social emotional tools, so in my work as a pastor, the last several weeks, it's been around parables and. And I almost laughed out loud as you were listing those things. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, if the characters in these parables had these skills. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Well,
1: it's always easy to see in other people more than it is to see in ourselves, for sure.
0: And that's what the power of parables are. It is. It is. And that's it is really the point of the parable is to to be able to reflect back or be that mirror for the listener. To be like, oh, maybe maybe this is me or part of me. Yeah. So that's the hope in the parable as the parable is presented, that it would help people turn towards one another and to turn towards the divine or the turn towards love. And so I just love how Taming Your Monkeys connects to this crazy parable of the king and the wedding banquet this coming week.
1: (laughs) I love that you're uh, focusing on parables because as a kid and I was raised Catholic and and I didn't connect oftentimes with the mass. I, it, for some reason, it just was incomprehensible to me. So I would oftentimes they they had books in the in the backs of the pews in front of you that had lots of the Bible stories in them. And so I spent much of mass reading the stories and the parables and I love them. And I, that's how I learned Christianity. Uh, yeah. And that's how I learned so much of social emotional um learning is through those parables. So I think that's wonderful that you're focusing, because for me, that was the most powerful part of my religious upbringing.
0: Yeah. And and I think it's good for folks, whether they're coming from a Christian perspective or not, that these parables have a theological purpose. Yeah. But I think they also have a social emotional purpose. Absolutely.
1: Like, yeah. Yeah.
0: So I think that they can be helpful to a wide range, you know, wide range of folks from different perspectives. Well, it's Uh, interesting how much of the research says, especially for
1: children, that, you know, we, we learn best sometimes when we're not confronted directly with our own shortcomings, with our own fears, with our own, you know, moral dilemmas. But when we see it playing out in a character, we can distance ourselves from that personal reaction. Right now, we've got the last few books that we've written have been featuring my dog, Enzo, and he in and, and we present typical things that are fears or issues for little children, but through Enzo and his puppy upbringing. So the first one was about him losing his comfort item, his blankie, and what do you do when you've lost your your sense of comfort for whatever reason. So we and you you make a very good point that people sometimes connect better with a lesson. When it's about somebody else.
0: <laughs> and, and I think for things that are very hard or things that where there's a lot of grief that happens or drama in people's lives, story is particularly, um, helpful in, in coping and working through those things. As a, as a child, I had, um, an older sister who passed away at the age of 15. And as a 12 year old, there was a lot, a lot. In that. But I remember coming across a wrinkle in time by Madeleine Langle. One of my favorites. Yes, yes, yes. And there were particular points in that story. And for those who haven't read it, I don't want to spoil it for you, so I will try not to. But there were particular points in that archetype of, of Meg and her journey and her journey and her family's journey through loss and grief that paralleled mine, not exactly the same. Yes. But the emotional level was very, very similar. Yes, absolutely.
1: You know, you could say the same thing for many people. Charlotte's Web was that book. Other people, Bridge to Terabithia. And those are things that, you know, we know that, for instance, kids like a good scare. And the reason they like a good scare uh, is because it's a safe way to learn how to deal with your fears is cool. to see a scary a little bit scary movie or hear kind of a scary story and you learn to cope with that feeling when it's not upon you yourself and the same with grief you know reading a book where you get to experience it through a character's eyes helps you kind of sort of figure out how to cope with it yourself yeah. um yeah that's, those are powerful books. Oh, I love Wrinkle in Time. I'm glad you mentioned it.
0: <laughs> I, I often, I actually just recently listened to it when I was commuting and I, I had my, my grand human with me. You know, yes. it, was, it was, and it was Madeline Langle reading it. <gasps> oh, so good. Yes. <laughs> and did your grand human love it as well? They, they did. They did love it. They, they thought it was great. And there are parts that she did a really, really bang up job of being scary. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. The voices and everything. It was was wonderful. But I I think that that's such an important part of life. And in our world that has so many wonderful technologies in it, I just hope that story doesn't get lost in all of that. And I love technology. I I love that, that we're able to have a conversation. And, you know, talk in two different places at the same time. But I really value story. And I think it's very important for humanity. It is.
1: And I I feel I do feel like that's a legitimate concern that we need to always keep in mind that while, you know, technology is so present in kids' lives that we need to create space for them to use their imagination through story, because some, you know, it's not the same. To play a video game as it is to lose yourself in a book. In terms of what it requires you to bring to it, it's a much more interactive process to read a book and bring your own imagination to it, bring your own questioning to it. And so, yeah, I'm with you. I hope that that doesn't get lost in the shuffle of all the the glitz and glamour of technology. Uh, And I'm I'm a techno. I love technology too. I'm kind of you know I'm always I love my computer, love my cell phone, love it all. But it doesn't can't replace paper and, and you know, actually holding a book in your hand or listening to someone read a story and requiring you to go there in your mind.
0: Yeah. Or just that oral tradition of telling, right, like I did, like I was able to receive from my grandfather. You know, I think that those are important things. But, you know, I think about all of those people in my my own life that helped to make that space for story Mm -hmm. out of my grandfather and my and, and you teachers along the way. And I think about you in this effort with Best Friend Books, that you're also making that space for people.
1: We're trying to every day. And I, I love what you said about storytelling as well. I think that's a whole other area that I would love to delve into and develop because I I read stories to my ki- grandkids, my grandhumans on FaceTime sometimes at night. And their favorite thing is when I'm away from home and I don't have a book with me, and they say make up a story, and they'll and it's in, always interesting because they want to tell me what they want to hear about, and so they'll tell me make up a story where Poochie, her prized little stuffed animal, comfort animal, gets lost, you know, and I'm like okay, I'll make. Or my grandson will say, "Tell me a story about Sleepo. That's his blankie, and 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 that Sleepo gets sick." you know, and he had been sick the week before. It's a way that kids cope with figuring things out for themselves to hear stories. And I love that. And and storytelling is a great tradition as well. You're right. We need to do more of that.
0: Yes, we do. Yes, we do. So, and I love that you are doing your work focusing on children, but I'm wondering as an educator, if you in your work have thought about the secondary impacts your books might have on parents or grandparents. We think of that all the time because
1: oftentimes we actually hear parents say, and a perfect example would be with how to tame your monkeys. A lot of parents go, you know what? I use the monkey taming strategies all the time myself. Or we'll hear, you know, we have a, one of the monkeys in the book is uh, Louise the listmaker who is always thinking of everything she has to do instead of being present in what she's doing right now. And they're like, oh, Louise the maker, kept me up last night. And we'll hear the adults referencing it. Many times we see them giving um, the book to their high school child as they graduate and go to college or to adult friends that are coping with different situations. And so we do see that impact happening. And I've got a couple Young adult novels in the works as well that are a little more complex, more along the lines of Wrinkle and Time, size and age range book that I'm working on as well that deal with some different, more of a more of a, a little co- more complex storylines. But that that's exciting. And I even have an adult novel that I've got kind of sketched out in my mind as well. So always well, something brewing.
0: <laughs> I love that. On a personal note, I'm just curious, besides Wrinkle in Time or Charlotte's Web, do you have an example of a story or a book that has been powerful to you? Or if it's those two, why? Yeah, those are a couple.
1: You know, Dr. Seuss was a huge impact on had a huge impact on me as well as Shel Silverstein. Both of those. And I get most of my books are written in verse. The ones for small children. And I think that has comes from an the impact of of Dr. Seuss and Shel Silverstein because and what I what I like about verse is that it has a song quality. As a matter of fact, my my friend when she first started illustrating the books, she said, "You know, I love your books because they're like a song. the The words are almost like lyrics to a song, and it helps you remember it better, which is very true. So, some of the the books I've started actually put to music as songs with a refrain and all of that kind of thing. So we're working on that as well. But Dr. Seuss would probably be the one that pops to mind. I'm thinking of like the Lorax, the Yertle the Turtle, the Sneeches, the Star-Bellied who had stars upon theirs, right? Yeah. And, and kind of set aside the ones who did not have stars on their bellies. Those were powerful moments where you recognize, I know who the Star-Bellied are in my life. You know, we know the people that exclude others because they're not don't have the the star on their belly. It, but it, it to me, Dr. Seuss was brilliant in that some of the themes of his books are so complex and adult that he's able to present them in a way that instantaneously kids understand it. And people really underestimate what kids are capable of understanding. When we originally wrote How to Tame Your Monkeys, our first thought was to try to get it distributed to children's hospitals and places where kids were under stress. And the first place that I went, I met with the child psychologist at a particular children's hospital and he said, oh, these these ideas are far too complex for kids, little kids to get. Mm, Not so much. We've done workshop after workshop. And after reading the book and talking about monkeys, little hands go up and I've got a monkey that makes me worry about cancer and I don't even know what cancer is. You know, Um, I've got a monkey that makes me miss my dad when he's deployed. I've got a monkey who worries about my parents divorcing because I heard them arguing and using that word. And I don't know what that means. Kids understand what monkeys are. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: And I think that that's, again, the power of story and the power of parable is once you figure out what the monkey is in the story, yes. then it powers you to, to learn something new or to grow. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Is there, so usually at the end of my conversations with folks, so important things, we need to know where to find you on oh, the perfect. interwebs. So where can we find you? You can find me at uh, bestfriendbooks.com.
1: All of our books are listed there and they're all available on Amazon. So if you look up How to Tame Your Monkeys by Lisa Combs, you'll also be able to find all my other books. And then you can also find me as an educational consultant through Combs CombsEducationalConsulting.com.
0: Terrific, terrific. And so another tradition I have here at Relation and Against Podcast is to invite guests to give a invocation or a blessing or a, a final word of encouragement. And I wondered if you had something you'd like to share. I would love to. What, a,
1: what an honor. That would be wonderful. So I would just offer up that as adults in this world, we're given a, an amazing opportunity to take what we've learned and pass it along to future generations to create a more peaceful, happy world through building more peaceful, happy children. And the way that we do that is through security and safety and helping kids understand that they're not in it by themselves, that there's this whole world outside of adults that have already been through it. And so may we use each day that we're given to help find, plant, and nurture the seeds of peace and happiness in someone younger than us. Mm -hmm.
0: May it be so. I think that is a beautiful blessing and invitation for all of us. Thank you so much, Lisa, for being here with me. And you are now a fellow holy shenanigator. Oh, hey, I was a shenanigator before before we ever got on here today. I'm I a fan <laughs> and a follower. So thank you so much for letting me be part of the show. I'm so happy to have you here. And I am so thankful for you and your illustrating best friend to help share these powerful stories of hope and peace in the world thank you i'm your holy shenanigans muse tara lamont eastman thank you for joining us this week for holy shenanigans that surprise encourage redirect and turn life upside down all in the name of love this is an unpredictable spiritual adventure that is always sacred but never stuffy thanks to ian eastman for sound production and editing Also, thanks to you, HSP listeners, for supporting our work with this podcast by way of www.buymeacoffee.com backslash Tara L. Eastman.